Hello to my fellow people of light. Welcome to Your Life is Full, the podcast, where we inspire, motivate, and connect those who are ready to indulge in the fullness of life. On today's episode, I brought on my dad, a very special person to me and someone who has taught me about life and work through his own actions. As he's in the midst of one of the largest ventures of his career, we dive deep into mindset, a survival mindset as he puts it, and how that has evolved and propelled him throughout many phases of his company. He outlines elements of a people and experience-centered business, what it means to have satisfaction in your career, and the honest evolution of an organic business based off passion and a good product. So without further ado, thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's jump on in. All right, bombers. <laughs> have you done a podcast before? Nope. First time. So your first time guest? Yes. Very exciting. Not only first time guest, but first time doing ever a podcast. Well, welcome. So I'm in for a surprise. You are. All you do is talk. And share whatever you want to share. Okay. So but I need some guidance because there will be guidance. We'll okay. just but we're gonna talk conversationally and I have some questions for you as my poppers. Yeah. Um and obviously I've been around you my whole life, so I picked up on ways that you are, your mindset, different things. But now I get to ask more specific questions and then also be able to share with people the way that you work and the way that ways that have that it's worked for you in the past and ways that you continue to work on the way that you do things and how you've basically been able to get to where you are now in your life so you're gonna invade my private space yes <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> what we're gonna i haven't you. tell any i haven't told anybody we're gonna, that's exactly what we want one of the juicy secrets my gosh okay yeah so a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast mm-hmm. is mindset and limiting beliefs right so a big uh topic is that in order to get to where we want to be there's obviously like limiting beliefs that we have about ourselves or about Uh, the view that we have of the world that allows us not to get to the place that we want to be at even if we do want to get there so you've been in your we'll talk professionally you've Mm -hmm. been in your sphere of chocolate for a good while now it's been like what 40 years of being Uh in the chocolate space there's obviously a lot of knowledge there and different things that we can go into in that sense that actually people have interest. They're always like, talk about with your dad, talk about chocolate, talk about chocolate. Yeah. (laughs) So that'll be for another podcast. But for right now, I'm interested in exploring your mindset and obviously it's evolved throughout the years, Mm -hmm. but you've always told me and explained when you started off how you kind of had more of like a survival mindset and Mm -hmm. that's what brought you the success that you have now um, but if you can run us through what a success mindset even looks like to you, what it means to you and how it's maybe evolved or how it started or where it was when you started and how it kind of shifted as you mm. saw professional advancements. Okay. Well, that's a very good question and very good start. And I think that where I came from, a lot of people were, had the easy way out they wanted to get something handed to them, uh, whether it be because we're the family that we're born into, or they would strategize to be married to the right couple or whatever. Um, and I remember the very first time that I came across that was when I was 15, 16, and somebody had a daughter that uh, in Mexico where I was living at the time 
wanted to marry me off because the, the father thought that I was good a good candidate. And it really insulted me that he thought, or the father or the family thought, that I would just go with a plan and something clicked in me. I said, I don't want anybody to give me anything that I don't deserve, that I haven't worked for, that I haven't struggled to get because then it's mine. Then it's something that I can own. And that moment really changed my, I wasn't in a mindset of privilege. I wasn't in a mindset of, I deserve this because uh, this person wants to marry his daughter to me. Uh, and it really marked me. And I think it was like 15 years old. We're at a really nice restaurant where all this setup took place. And I felt trapped. I felt like I'm being set up to something that nobody's even asked me if that's what I want. And uh, in a strange sense, that, that really propelled me and motivated me to say, no, I'm going to do things my way to get me where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And that mindset then carried through throughout yes. and, and started you because you've always been that way even in like when it comes to deciding what you wanted to do professionally was like, well, you in school, you had limited choices on what you could do, mm. but then you always stuck to, I know what I like to do. I know I like to make chocolates and you discovered a way to make that into a successful model for you, right? Well, it was, it was, I mean, that's the romantic side of it, but you know, the truth is when I came to Canada when I was 16, it was culture shock. I came from a Mexican society and I came to Canada where everything was different. And the first couple of years, I came in here when I was grade 10 into Canada. So the first couple of years, I was just finding my way in Canada. And then I remember going to an orientation in grade 12 to career selection. And there was all these universities. And I was walking around and I say, well, you know, this I want to go to UBC. I want to go to University of Toronto. And they would ask what my grade point average was. And I was always a C student, C plus student. So they would always they were very polite, being Canadian, and they would say, "Well, maybe you need to go to college for a couple of years and get your grade point average up." And I was so disappointed. I said, "Disappointed in that I didn't get anybody to guide me to prepare me to see where I was and where I wanted to go, and see what I had to do to get there." So that was another reminder of, for me, anyways, it was. I've got to look after myself. I have to, because nobody else is going to. My parents were really busy just also identifying themselves as to what they wanted to do in Canada. My brother was with his horses. My sister was with her dancing, my younger sister. So I really felt like I was by myself deciding what my, what I was going to do. And luckily my parents had set up the, uh, chocolate shop and I just started working there so it was the space I fell into the chocolate world because it was it was there and at the time I didn't have a, another opportunity to go to and I started uh, liking 
chocolate. I started liking how to process it, how to make it a very creative space with ingredients, flavors, varieties that could be done. And what I was doing together with my mom that was teaching me how to do them was uh, it's a very creative space, very difficult. I remember we had very difficult financial times at the time, but uh, we just kept going. And that built up the backbone to not give up and keep doing things to get where you want to go. And the process, because chocolate is really beautiful medium everybody loves chocolate there's a saying in the chocolate business that out of 10 people nine like chocolate and the 10th people the 10th person doesn't like it they're lying <laughs> <laughs> so you started to enjoy the space like you fell into the space because there was no other option but then you actually started to develop a liking to it yes and then from there, was it something shifted in you to like you had a model that was very brick and mortar, very like dependent on your time to then you had a factory and the model throughout the years and you can go into it, but it's shifted pretty dramatically from where it started. But this all stemmed from you now saying, okay, I like this medium and then letting your kind of business mind, creative mind come in. Or what, where is the gap there between starting something because you kind of just had to or because there was no other choice to now saying, okay, I'm going to dedicate myself to this and make this something that's successful? Well, this, this is a very, very good question. There's about 16 questions in that statement <laughs> you just made right now. But uh, if I, the chronology was, for me, was at the beginning, it was a chocolate shop and it was, you know, I was getting paid X dollars an hour to make chocolates by my parents so I was making chocolate but then uh, some people would come by my mom's very creative and she would make a recipe one day and next day she wouldn't make it and I remember this couple from I think they were from Surrey and they had some friends coming in from Seattle and they a few months ago they had tasted one of the truffles that we had made and um, my mom being very artistic, they, they showed up and obviously was sold out. And very nonchalantly, she said, well, that, that was the flavor of the week or the flavor of the month. And we don't have any more. And I remember the, the, the jaws dropped on these people that have come all this way that invited their friends to taste this chocolate. And it wasn't available. And I felt really guilty. I said, some people are putting a lot of effort to come and taste what we do and it's not available. So I started following my mom around and writing the recipes of what she was doing. So by, not by inertia, but by, by need, I started standardizing the processes and the recipes so that we could replicate them if we wanted to, whenever we wanted to. And it was just by chance, but now that I that I we make a lot of more product than we do that we did before, um, that is a standard operating procedure for manufacturing. But nobody taught me that other than the the actual moment of application where I saw what was going on. I was aware. I wasn't just thinking about me making chocolates. I was trying to pay attention to what was going around the store what was making people feel good 
and really chocolate and most of the things that I've done in my life, I want to make people feel good about what they do or what they taste from what I do or the interaction that I have with them, whether it be making chocolates or, or talking to people or doing any transaction. It's trying to feel good with them and then feel good with me so that in a small way you can start building a relationship and some relationship like that when you start feeling good with the people that you're around um, some of those relationships have lasted you know there's suppliers that have been friends with and buying chocolate for you know 40 years 35 years and that is i think one of the very important pillars is when you are truthful and you connect with someone in the level that you want to help them, they want to help you, and you've got a common purpose. Uh, it's like a different language where you can build trust or you can build a common goal. You can build a comfort zone where you're not going to mess them up and you know they're not going to mess you up. So it's a nice small community where you can connect in things that are important to that particular individual in a professional way, in a commercial way, and in a way, also in a personal way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've been very lucky to, to observe that my whole life, like seeing business, because a lot of people see business as like a very cutthroat or very, mm-hmm. you know, like that you're trying to get at people or undercut people. And mm-hmm. luckily I've seen your experience in business has been very like sociable. And, and if anything, your business has been built off of who you are as a person, the way that you Mm. treat people outside of business has turned into your business as well. Right. And one of your, your characteristics like is your charisma. Right. And that's led to the relationships that you've had last for so many years and have transformed in so many different ways. But when you were starting your journey from just, okay, being in the or in the store, making chocolate to then, okay, now this is going to scale up into an actual business was there a, a limiting belief within your mind of like, I know who I am as a human, as Carlo. I know how I potentially want to show up in business, but then you also see many examples of how business is done or were you very much like, I'm going to create my own path in this world of business? Hmm. That's a very good question. And as I hear you asking me that, it was never about me. It was about what I can create in the product that will make somebody feel good about the product. So it was the products became in a way an extension of me communicating to, uh, I guess, the chocolate soul of the individual that I was that was going to be eating the product. My mindset was always, well, this chocolate tastes good this way. Well, what if we mix it a little bit longer? What if we change the temperatures? What if we change the ratios? What if we add more cream to it? What if we whip it after it's cold? And it was always the progression was to try to make the the, the product that I was having people eat and taste and enjoy to make it even better. Um, So it's weird. You know, you're asking me all these questions. I never even thought about it, but... Uh, some of the things that we were doing at the time, people really connected to it. 
they would put the product in their mouth and they would go, oh my God, this is so good. This is a champagne truffle like I've never had in my life. And I've had Tauscher from Switzerland and I had this from Belgium, but this is way better. So it was a combination of, of different ingredients, different temperatures, different process. And that was really satisfying to be able to provide that much sensory um, enjoyment to, mm -hmm. to to people and um, it's I don't know it's like when a chef does something really special and it makes people feel something that they haven't mm -hmm. um, some of the products that we were making at that time did do that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's that piece in your in your mind that because there's like you said the example of a chef right like there's a chef or someone who cooks really well at home and maybe that just stays as their skill mm -hmm. so you guys clearly had a skill for making good tasting chocolates but then it became a business from mm -hmm. that and it grew into a factory that you guys were supplying to airlines and grocery mm -hmm. stores so what was that evolution like that shift like well the it was interesting because the people that would taste that chocolate would then talk to other people. Have you tasted this? Have you tasted this product from this company? And some people that had influence in purchasing more product, whether it be hotels or airlines or retailers that we're still selling to today, would taste the chocolate and say, man, this is good. I want it. I want it on my shelves or I want it on my yeah. airline or I want it in my hotel because I think that they would, those people, when they tasted it, they would feel or they would know all that passion that was behind what was being delivered in chocolate. So all that care, all that love, all that tenderness, the chocolate was the, 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 the delivery method of all of that. Um, so it wasn't for us, it wasn't just making chocolate it was making the very best chocolate that we could with what we had mm. um and you know it, it just we were so passionate about it and we're talking about an evolution of maybe five six years to get to the mm -hmm. to that taste and you know and to this day you know one of my bucket list items is to find my recipe book that i it was a blue mm. as a blue binder it wasn't a blue binder it was a blue spiral that um i couldn't use in my geometry class or something in high school and I, it had like 100 pages and that became my recipe book mm. and i i wish i could find it because it has so much details and and, and so much nuances to make the product that we were making at the time and we're making small batches. We're making, you know, 20 pound, 30 pound batches. I would, like, it's a bucket list item of mine to be able to, for my personal nostalgia, to go back to that and to see what reaction I could get from people on that. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, like, organic evolution. It wasn't intended to be necessarily what it is today, but it was like having, first of all, starting off with good intentions always making it come from good intentions mm -hmm. and then listening to the reaction that's going on around you and taking advantage of the opportunity to grow essentially when it when it presents itself 
Well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say taking advantage. It was like it was a big motivator mm-hmm. to get that in feed, to get that feedback, to get those smiles, to get those the people are surprised or, or what the emotion that the the product that we're seeing people eat. It was very inspiring and wanted wanted to keep doing better. And then, so that was from a, all of this that I'm telling you comes from a very artistic, emotional uh, sense. But then the other part that started to materialize was the business side. Was, uh, okay, you're doing this. Well, how much is it costing? How much are you selling it at? Uh, because both my parents were very artistic and very altruistic and but my gosh we were selling chocolates you know my dad decided how much per kilo and when i asked him well how much why do you decide that per kilo well you know that guy over there is selling it for this much that guy's selling over there for that much so i figure you know we're gonna be not the highest not the lowest a little bit in the middle and plus okay so at the time i said okay well my dad's Decided that the price we're going to sell per kilo. But then one day I started adding, okay, well, how much does it cost us for the whipping cream? How much does it cost us for the champagne or the drambuie or the Grand Marnier that we were using in the chocolate? How much does the chocolate cost? And I started running some numbers. And I started seeing the price difference of all the recipes. And it was very, they were very big. The ones with alcohol, forget it. The drambuie was really expensive. The, the Grand Marnier was really expensive. And then I just think, well, you know, we've got to start developing products that not only meet the taste, but also that are economically viable. Mm-hmm. And when I did that cost study, we got rid of about six recipes because they weren't making, and we wanted to sell everything at per kilo the same price. And we, wanted to, we didn't want to differentiate, which we could have, but we just got rid of those other because they weren't commercially viable. So at one point, I don't know what triggered it, but it was okay. We're making all these people happy, but how much money are we making? So then the commercial side kicked in. Then the further step after that is, okay, well, how can we make them faster? Same product, maintain mm-hmm. the quality, but how can, how can we, how can we increase our output? Um, and I remember that time we had ladies dipping the chocolates by hand, the truffles by hand. And at the beginning of everything, we were scooping everything from um, ice cream scoops. Mm. And it took forever because you have to scoop it, round it all. So then, you know, we found, we went to Seattle. One of our suppliers recommended we go to another chocolatier. And they had a machine that was a hand crank made in the 1940s. Then a few cranks, you get, I think it was 48 pieces of chocolate centers. So that was an evolution. Okay, we can do that. Well, then we can have more people dipping. And then, well, you know, you get all that extrusion. Instead of people dipping, you have this enrobing machine where you can do 15,000 pieces a day with two people. So the discovery process was in... At that point was, okay, we know what our cost is for our materials. Well, how can we expand our capacity to bring the price down and go for more market? 
and that's when it started really commercially start to make sense everything that we were doing mm-hmm. so fast fast forwarding a little bit because obviously there's a big time that this happened over a course of what like 30 40 years yeah. but when there is a particularly difficult time when between losing the factory that you then mm-hmm. built to then deciding whether you were going to stay in the chocolate space and if it was how it was going to look and how it was going to evolve what did your mindset look like at that time well right after losing the factory i was very mad at chocolate i thought that chocolate was not the space that i should be in so i started dabbling in olive oil wine vinegar pasta um and maybe i had a list of maybe 30 products that i wanted to commercialize and sell but not with any of my input just products that i would see that you know i tasted i liked and i wanted to wholesale and then um I was making presentations and I made a presentation to one customer that I used to buy when I had a factory and uh, he was very very shrewd and very direct and he asked me what are you selling me all this shit for I can find this anywhere I want your chocolate so I just he's a customer I'm shut up and I listened and uh, he made a very wise suggestion he said don't sell me anything else that you've already presented come up with some good stuff don't sell me any shit my god I just stood quiet and I said no problem I had three ideas I want to send your way and you'll you'll have them in two weeks I had no idea what those three ideas were right but (laughs) (laughs) it just that just pushed me back to okay Carlo you know chocolate don't dabble in something else and you told the guy you're going to present three items. So I put my, okay, my creative height on chocolate. And I think I sent, in that time frame, I sent six different concepts. And he ended up buying two. Hmm. But those two that he bought were in really big quantities. They're like 5,000 pounds, 10,000 pounds per variety. And that at that time, it was a lot of chocolate. Hmm. And that just... That mindset said, okay, I'm not a champagne maker. I'm not a cheese maker. I know mm. chocolate. But it's an interesting moment because it, at, you had an opportunity, right? Like when that person, that buyer made that comment, mm-hmm. you had the immediate reaction, which says something about you, the way that your brain works, to, oh, I already had those things planned. You know what I mean? Like you were already set up for okay how am i going to make this work mm-hmm. as opposed to having the mentality of that's not something like oh i have nothing prepared or that's not mm-hmm. something i want to go mm-hmm. back into right so there was you started off like you said to build the factory like survival mm-hmm. where did you go back into survival or what was that mindset that allowed you to say okay like think on your toes essentially come up with something and make it work well at that time it was it was more than survival. It was like really, really, really need to survive because I hadn't sold any champagne. I hadn't sold any cheese. I hadn't sold any bread or any of the toasties that I thought were going to be a hit. But I had to pay the rent. I had kids. I had to buy food. And the when you have that necessity, 
you have to think very quickly. You have to come up with uh, solutions right away. So luckily at that time I said, okay, well, I went to a few stores, I got some ideas, and this is very, very, from a business perspective, this was really important, where I said, okay, what are the gaps in products that my customer does not have now that I think they should and that mentality is finding where the gap is is for me at the time and I think it's still the case is where the business opportunity was not replicating something that's already out there which sometimes is an opportunity but it's a little bit more difficult to sell because it's already been done before but is where is the gap that the consumer wants that they're seeking for that is not on the shelves uh, so with that mindset I did I thought about like I think it was five or six things and when I presented they took two so that recipe of finding the gap proved to be very very good and I followed that model ever since whenever a new product is being created is created with the mindset of what gap is it going to fill for the market uh, it's got to taste good but what other attributes does it have mm-hmm. so i remember when i first launched organic uh, our organic chocolate products there was no organic regulation it, was, it goes far it goes that far back 20 now it's about 26 years 27 years we've been making organic chocolate now it's common now people know all about organic mm-hmm. but part of the opportunity is always looking okay what is the next trend that's important to the consumer that they, they they're seeking that uh, they want to they want to buy they want to get that they can't at this moment on the shelves so that's the driving factor for new item innovation of what mm. I'm doing mm. so then fast forward again because your story is very long and maybe we'll do another part of it where you can describe the story because it's been a journey but now you're at another place in your career where you've gotten the success from like from the time when you lost the factory to creating kfm to now to then running kfm for essentially like 20 plus years with the model that you've been running and it's been successful for you to now jumping into another endeavor much later in your life that is a big stretch but i mean now you have a lot of of knowledge in the space to back you up and people in the space to back you up and you have a lot of things in place that Mm -hmm. allow you to take that jump but now what is your mindset because it's not really or maybe it is survival it is survival, but it's it's different it's survival in a different way before it was survival to pay the rent and feed my kids and uh buy food and right now it's survival for the company because the current manufacturing output that the third-party manufacturers can provide us is not enough to satisfy demand of uh, the growing customers that we have so it is it's a different type of survival right now it's more of a corporate survival that um, is pushing or has pushed me for the past year year and a half to set up our own 
factory again so that we gain control of that. We can control all the manufacturing and we're not dependent on uh, what a third party manufacturer can provide. So that's, that's it, it's very challenging because it's the volumes that we're producing are in my little world are significant. So it takes a lot of equipment, it takes a lot of people, it takes a lot of regulation, compliance, and a lot of space uh, to, to get it set up. And we're in the process of doing that right now. Hmm. And uh, just from, because I've seen the story and from what you were saying before and see the evolution of how it's happening now, it's like, yeah, it kind of does seem like survival because it's like you said, these quick decisions that you have to make where, you know, this issue was happening with not being able to meet supply and very quickly it became okay I guess we're building out a factory you know Mm -hmm. like there wasn't really a lot of time in between there and like before when you had that customer that said you know can can you make this product and all of a sudden it's like it's a quick decision that allows you to do that and my question is for because survival sounds like a very uh, like fight or flight, very stressful thing, right? Because if you're in survival mm-hmm. and you're trying to make something work out of survival, that's a very stress, stressful position to be in, yet you've managed to build a business where you're not like a, a business person that is, okay, we need to make every, it's all about the money. It's all about making things work. Like you still have maintained your own integrity as a human and mm-hmm. your charisma throughout the process. So I guess what is, what is survival mean to you what does it actually look like to you well that's a very good question and survival is when i didn't have anything to put on the table for my kids and i had to come up with a model without having a factory and at the time um, that was easier to do because there was a lot more manufacturing capacity and there was a lot more staff that were running the factories so in the past 25 years, all those smaller factories or many of those smaller factories have been bought out by larger corporations or larger uh, factories and they've stopped uh, producing for other people. Uh, so the manufacturing capacity has shrunk over the years. And then when COVID hit, there was uh, past two three years shifts uh, factories that would run two or three shifts were only able to run one shift so their capacity diminished tremendously as well and when covid hit people started eating more chocolate so there was more demand for chocolate but less output so that's that's we thought there was the the, the, this uh, backslash on reduced capacity was going to last six months but obviously it didn't because you know, COVID has just been announced. I think today I heard that the World Health Organization said that there is pandemics over, but now everybody's shifted to working different. A lot of people working from home. And what that's done is that the, the workforce to run factories has been greatly reduced. So having said all that, to answer the survival question is, in the commercial world, if you cannot supply on time in the quantities that your customers are ordering, you're going to die. So survival is a little bit different for me right now. You know, luckily there is no issue with 
buying food and paying rent and and buying clothes like I was when I first started KFM. But if KFM cannot supply products on time in the quality and in the price that the customers want, they'll just go somewhere else. And mm -hmm. that's where the survival kicks in. So yes, it is very stressful. Yes, it is fight or flight. Um, but once, and I'm hoping that once the factory is set up and producing and the good people that we're hiring and treating well and paying well, they, they love doing what they're doing and we will have installed capacity that we have control of. So 100% of that capacity goes to the customers that we want and we will have enough capacity to keep everybody happy and then it won't be survival anymore. Mm. So even though it's been, I guess, survival at times and there's been times where, I mean, in the middle of KFM where it was kind of like smooth sailing mm -hmm. for you, um, starting from when you were 16 working at the store to where you are now, how have you been able to just like find joy in the work that you do and in all the ways that it's changed throughout the years? Oh, there's always a lot. There's tons of joy in doing what I do with creating products and meeting people and and have, seeing friends and seeing people that are in the industry. And, you know, we have like-minded people in the industry. You've got a lot to talk about, a lot to share that would probably make you a lot of other people bored when we start talking about, you know, deposit plates and dosages and, and recipes and temperatures and, and molds and cycles and, but people that love chocolate and chocolate production, um, you know, the recipes, the mill, the, the micron size and amount of fat and the, and the cocoa butter, deodorized, not deodorized, uh, alkalized, uh, cocoa powder or not, uh, the, the, where the beans come from, are they roasted, are they heavy roasted, are they, there, there's so many details that um, when you talk to people that are passionate about and that they're knowledgeable about chocolate, it's, it's very comforting to, to be in that nucleus, to be with people that share that passion. Um, so that, that's, that's very motivating. The part that I don't like about now, uh, what's happening with the industry and maybe it's happening a lot of food industries is the amount of time that I spend doing regulatory work is just so much time behind the computer, so much time behind uh, forms and statistics and um, regulations and compliance and all that. So that's the part that I personally don't like. I'd rather be with my hands covered in chocolate, creating new products. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, but, but I find that I have less and less time to do that. And hopefully with the, once the factory is set up and I'm hiring people to do all the regulatory things, I can get back to doing the creative side of mm -hmm. formulation. So going back to kind of the success mindset, whether you, maybe you felt this already or maybe you haven't, but if you have felt it, how do you know or, or what signals to you, I am successful? Or when will you feel like you have reached the level of success that you want to reach? I don't think there is a level of success that I want to reach. I'm, it's part of the journey. And 
you know, success goes up and down. Sometimes you screw things up. Sometimes you make them better. But it's all those little challenges that you meet day to day and, and getting some of the visions accomplished are very rewarding. Uh, and those, those don't go in the media. Those don't get awards. Don't, those don't get any mention. But they're little personal victories that you when you accomplish some things, some uh, milestones with your crew, with your people. Those are little successes that I think the ones that are really matter. We've won awards in different countries for chocolate that we've made. And that's rewarding, but that's more of a glamour reward. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, just, you know, we got this packaging machine that we just installed in, 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 in the factory. It's the first packaging machine we have there. And my God, it is slow and it's not working and it's got its bumps and bruises and we're learning the machine. But you know what? We ended up the first couple of days doing, you know, a couple of pallets of product. And it was very rewarding. And the team was, we were all hugging and jumping up and down because we got that done. Those two pallets of product, when the machine's running properly, will do out in two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. It took us day and a half to do those two pallets the first time, but yeah. I'm a firm believer in good starts. Something starts good, and you keep at it, focus on the details, and it continues to get better. It continues to get better. You you communicate that to people. Well, we did this. The machine can do that, but let's work towards it. It's, it, it's an escalation of effort and discovery and, you know, People don't think that machines talk or metals talk, but I think they do. You treat them well, um, you, and they 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 give you feedback. I remember when I was in in Hawaii from an, in a spiritual way. The uh, they have a I think it's called mana in Hawaii, where they say everything has a spirit. Mm. And I truly believe that, like, inanimate objects have a spirit that if you can connect to them and you tell them what you want, how you want them to help you, I think they, they, they contribute back. Mm. And it's like the idea of, like, the gratification that comes from just creating something out of nothing, like something that mm. wasn't there before. And, like, I'm pulling this up because uh, CeeLo Green, so a, a singer, he posted mm. this. He said, I respect anybody who's pulled an idea out of their brain and fully brought it into life. Mm. That shit is spiritual. To know that it started as a thought and you brought it into fruition is crazy. Shout out to the ones who see it through all the way. Keep creating. Yeah. And that's key. Seeing it all the way. Because mm-hmm. many times, you know, writing when a thing get really difficult and you don't know... You got to see it all the way. Like the this factory that I'm in right now, my gosh, uh, I got to see it through. I got to see it through. It's nowhere near completion, but you know, maybe still be another eight months, nine months, 10 months before it's completed. But I've got to see it through. And So when it's shitty, is that what you tell yourself? I have to see it through or what do you tell um, yourself? 
I don't tell myself anything. It's more of a vision or more of a, not a vision, more of a, a picture in my mind mm. of what I think, how I think the inside of that factory is going to look. And it just, it, that just motivates me that is going to have so many state of the art and clean and efficient production and people happy doing what they're doing and great product coming out of the production lines. So that's what motivates me right now because right now we're nowhere near like it's all leasehold improvements and there's mm -hmm. you know, the machines are in pallets and in crates and uh, and they need you know they need plumbing they need electricity floors need to be done walls need to be done lights need to be done it's just mm -hmm. but if I look at it as it is now it is a lot better in advancement when it was in January my gosh it's a completely different thing from I was in January mm -hmm. so it's getting closer to where I know of what it's going to look like mm -hmm. so that's that's really my motivator my driving force and as I get people involved the compliance manager the production manager they're starting uh, my wife is helping move with design of for the the employee welfare room and there's the the project manager that used to own the facility he's totally loving the idea and the concept so when you, when i was able to communicate that of what i wanted to do and some people like this lady the compliance manager she quit her job she's been in eight years she liked what i was doing and she quit her job and she joined in and he said, I like what you're doing. The other guy that's coming, hopefully he joins. He's quitting a job that he's been at 38 years mm -hmm. to join yeah. this facility because they understand the vision. The, the guy that, I, that the project manager, Scott, he was going to retire after selling the building. And when he found out what I was doing and he understood what I was doing and, and he, he understood the vision, he's, he's working full time. Because he likes what is being constructed in his hometown, um, so that synergy, that in, that that vision, uh, was communicated in a way that made sense and resonated to some people that said, "I want to be part of this." Hmm. So that, in a way, it's, it's motivating. But it's also a big responsibility. It's like, oh shit, <laughs> <laughs> I, better, I better pull this off properly because all these people are are you know, they see the they believe in it. I, I have to I have to yeah. complete it. So again, to, back to kind of like the the bit of the survival of just like pressure, but healthy pressure. Of yeah, I hope it's healthy. It I hope it's healthy. Yeah. But it, it, it's it's uh, you know when it, when it, when when projects are smaller. The survival of yourself, but now it's you know, sort of myself, survival of the project, and all these other people that are coming on board. Yeah. Because they have families, they have responsibilities, yeah. and what well, makes people want it is just yeah. as bad too, right? Yeah. If they're invested in it, right? Yeah. So my last question for you is: This is the your life is pull your life is full podcast. Yes. Right. So what does living a full life mean to you? Going back to racing. <laughs> 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 no, a full life. I uh, that's that's a very good question. But it, um, 
it's a combination of several things, but doing something or completing or advancing, completing, doing a project or something that really motivates you and enjoying the process of doing it, not getting lost in the pressure and missing out. Like, you know, I went out with lunch with you the other day. I loved it. Talking to my mom or being with my wife and not losing yourself in the project that you're in that you think is so important and closing your senses to other things that are really also important. So having a balance and uh, listening to yourself. If you're tired, relax. If uh, you're not feeling good, well, do some exercise. Try to take care of yourself. Um, having discipline, but also being uh, caring for yourself, forgiving for yourself if you make a mistake, not being too harsh on yourself, and just pushing through, pushing through and uh, enjoying the, the laughter of other people, good morning, friendliness, warmth, human warmth, and uh, finding a community of that can share things that are important to you that group of people that you know when i race cars a lot of the fun is racing cars mm -hmm. but also the people the passion of the other people same thing with kiteboarding you know kiteboard you kiteboard you enjoy the kiteboarding but then it's what happens after uh, so I, when i used to do kickboxing same thing you enjoy the kickboxing but there's a chat what happens after uh, the famous... the life outside of just the project, just the thing that you're trying to achieve. It's the life that comes, yeah. that builds itself around it. Or the people that I've met, you know, who the hell thought I was going to meet people, wonderful people in Ohio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but I have, and, and they're really, really good people. Yeah. So that uh, human connectivity or the human connection, I think, is part of what enriches somebody's life, or my life anyways. And... You know, I love the senses. I love having a good chocolate, a good wine, a good meal, um, the laugh, the, the, the music, the colors that I experience when I'm somewhere like Mexico or some culinary places here in Canada. Um, yeah, it's just being open. So that's what I think is important to live a full life music you know enjoy your music <laughs> and dancing and there's so many things beautiful yeah well thank you poppies you're welcome chungles and having a daughter like tushy pie delights oh thank you that's like a really big yeah and family yeah that's good family and enjoying family and family moments and some families are like our family is a bit mixed up, screwed up sometimes, but we're still <laughs> so it's everything. So is everyone. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. And lots Appreciate of traveling. You. Yeah. <laughs> lots of lots of elements to live a full life. Yeah. Well, I love you. Thank you for coming I on. I love you too. I appreciate you. And lots of love, that's what makes it all worth living <laughs> a full life. Lots of love. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Pops. You're welcome, sweet.